0: In preparation for the message this morning, I would invite you to turn to the scripture reading, Revelation 1, that's also found in page 1454 of the Pew Bibles. Revelation 1, verses 10 through 18. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace, And his voice was like the sound of many waters, and in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and of Hades.
1: One of the most important principles that guides me in the way I preach and what I focus on in my preaching comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You don't need to look this up. It's just one verse, and I'll read it to you. It goes like this. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to the next from the Lord, the spirit. Now, the principle is this gospel change of character that is change that moves from the inside out, that is not external and constrained and legalistic, but genuine, heartfelt, inner change of character, that kind of change in a human life comes from steady gazing at the glory of Jesus. That's the principle. Let me read it again, just so you hear it. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into his image. Some people say seeing is believing. This says seeing is becoming. What you value enough to take time to focus on, you will become like. Take heed, young people especially who gravitate towards music and heroes and all kinds of things that tend to just consume the soul with attention and focus. You will become like what you focus on. And if it's Christ, it'll be the best of outcomes. Now, the implication for preaching, as you can tell, obviously, is that if my goal for you, for Bethlehem, is that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next into the image of Christ, my job is mainly to lift up Christ and to help you from the Word focus on the glory of Jesus because the principle is change comes from steady gazing at the glory of Christ. Change comes from steady gazing at the glory of Christ. We need at Bethlehem some things about Christ built into our lives right now. We need the perseverance of Christ in the face of affliction. We need the energy and the strength of Christ in the midst of depleting stresses and pressures. We need the wisdom of Christ in the face of ministry and life and family complexities. We need the stability of Christ in the midst of rapid social, personal cultural change. We need the assurance of his sovereign authority in a culture that seems to be just running pell away from what he believes and stands for. It's no exaggeration at all to say we need Christ more than we need anything. We've prayed about money. We don't need money nearly as much as we need Jesus. We don't need that finances at the end of this year, nearly like we need the Lord to draw near and to open our eyes to behold his glory. John said in his letter, first letter, beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You see that same connection when he appears at the end of the age? In full glory, we shall be fully like him. In other words, now we are moving from one degree of glory to the next as we have these inadequate, imperfect pictures of Christ to look at in the Bible and in our own imagination and in his work in each other. And so we move gradually. But at the end of the age, he will appear. And when we see him, we will become fully like him. And in the twinkling of an eye, that process will stop being processed. And be completed. And I want that day to happen very much. But until it comes, I know that our job as a church is to look to Jesus again and again. And as I thought, what should we do at the end of the year? What should we do at the last Sunday of the year? And as I was praying, I just felt very strongly, look to Jesus. Just get a fresh year-end glimpse of Jesus. And that's what we want to do from this text both now and Thursday evening together in communion as the year ends. Verse 9, at the end of the verse, says that John was exiled on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, John valued Jesus so much that he chose at the end of his life to be on an island, exiled away from all of his loved ones, rather than stop sharing the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Here he is, an old man. You're supposed to be able to retire and take it easy as an old man, right? But if somebody comes along and says, do you give testimony to Jesus? Do you speak the word of God? Then you have a choice to say, no, I don't, and live in ease in Ephesus, or yes, I do, and die in misery on Patmos. And he said, yes, I do, because that was what he loved. He loved Christ more than the ease of Ephesus. He had gazed at Jesus long enough that he became like Jesus. And we know that Jesus values the obedience of fellowship and the fellowship of obedience more than he values ease and comfort. So John is a great living testimony of what he wants to happen In our lives. In verse 10. He hears behind him. A loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. It says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day when he heard this. I almost preached on that phrase. John was in the spirit. On the Lord's Day. So, oh, that's a great sermon text. Because I don't think most Americans believe in the Lord's Day anymore. Let alone trying to be in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Virtually every one of you are going to watch the ball game this afternoon when you get home. Which may be okay. If you spend an equal amount of time in the Spirit, maybe. But don't get legalistic, Pastor, you know. Three hours of each. Come on, what do you mean? I wonder. I just wonder what it would mean to be in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. There is a Lord's Day. Let's just start there. There is a Lord's Day. Every day is the Lord's. Yes, yes, okay, okay. But there is a Lord's Day. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That's Sunday. That's today. It's not the weekend. It's the week beginning He rose from the dead on the Lord's day. He started something brand new on the Lord's day. He switched the worship on the Lord's day. He brought life on the Lord's day. This is his day. We do not keep it holy to our peril. And I remember a teacher. I am preaching the sermon, by the way. This is not in my notes. I'll close it in just a minute. But this is the second service and I can go over time. I had a teacher in Fuller who was a great man, Dr. Bromley. Who translated Kittles' ten volumes, and and he said he hiked, he hiked on the Lord's Day, and up in the mountains north of Pasadena, and uh, we talked to him about people burning out, and he wrote a little article for the staff for the student newspaper that I was editing at the time, and he said these big pastors who take ten weeks off in the summertime and and need extended leaves and burn out, they wouldn't have to do that. If they believed in the Lord's day. Really believed in the Lord's day. Now, pastors can't do the Lord's day on the Lord's day, but they can do that part of the Lord's day on another day. They can keep the Lord's day holy and they can do the rest thing on another day. But I'm, I'm, I'm talking mainly to you now. If you don't believe in one day out of seven broken from the stress of life, you're going to die. This is a gift offered to you for God's glory and your benefit. And I know probably better than any of you the pressure not to keep the Lord's Day. End of sermon. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And because he was in the Spirit, because he was so in tune with the Spirit as he worshipped alone on that barren island, God spoke to him. And the voice said in verse 11, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. Now, what that means is the vision he's about to get that I want to preach about this morning and Thursday night is not just for him. It's for you. Otherwise, he wouldn't have told him. Write it down. He said, write what you see and send it to the seven churches. Now, this is really remarkable. Think about this and what it means for your communion with God. John got the vision, you get the book. Read it again. Write in a book what you see and send it to the churches. That must mean you get the book, he got the vision. Now, it doesn't say you can't have a vision. I don't believe that. I don't preach that. It does say, I think, normally... You meet God in the book. John met him in a vision. Normally. Now, does that mean that God wants to be distant from the churches, distant from Bethlehem, distant from the people of the book? An intellectual thing, a reading thing, a study thing, a writing thing. Is that the point here? That's not the point. The point, I think, is Christ wills to draw near to Bethlehem, near to the churches of Asia Minor, through the book. He got the vision, we get the book. Now, the point is not distance. The point is, Jesus wills to draw near in different ways at different times to different people. And the main way Jesus means to draw near is through the word in this age. He means to stand forth to you in preaching, in quiet meditation. He means to draw near to you through the word. And what John saw is meant to be real to you. You know, it is not easy to write what you see. It's easy to write what you say. Okay? I say words, I can write words. But if you tell me to see a vision, a vision, and then you say, write it for somebody else to share in. You tend to say, no way, I couldn't begin to write what I see. That's why people resort to poetry, song, music, because it defies that. But John said, no, no, you can't get off the hook. It says, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. And so I just dwell on this because you are among the candlesticks where the Lord is standing and the vision that John God is for you this morning. He wants you to see him this morning. Now, verse 12 says he turns to see the voice of the trumpet and he saw seven golden lampstands. And Christ in the midst of them. Now, before we move on, what are the lampstands? Verse 20. Look down to verse 20 for the interpretation. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, think about this. He turned to see who was speaking, And he sees lampstands, seven of them. He's going to write to seven churches. And he sees the Lord in the midst of the lampstands. And the point there surely is that when those seven churches read these seven letters that he's about to write, they are to see themselves as a lampstand with the Lord. The Lord is among the lampstands. The Lord is not distant from the lampstands. He's not just over the lampstands. He's not against the lampstands. He's walking among the lampstands, trimming the wicks. That's you. You're the wicks on the Bethlehem lampstand. He's carving the wax. He's he's breathing upon that flickering flame. This is my wife's birthday today. And uh, I lit one candle and stuck it in a sticky roll this morning. We'll do something more special later. And she blew out the candle and as the candle goes, it always has just a little teeny orange dot that lasts one, two, three seconds. So where a lot of you are right now in your life, you feel like you've got maybe three seconds before it's gone. The Lord is walking among the lampstands. And you'll see who he is walking before we're done both this morning and Thursday, but but one of the things he's doing is tending the wicks right now. He means through my message, through your prayers, through this music, to blow upon that little orange dot, not to put it out. He will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering flax, the Lord said. He is walking among the lampstands. Now, here is who he is. Let's look at it. Verse 13. John saw him as one like a son of man. Let's ponder that for a minute. Son of man. Most of us, when we hear the term son of man, we think. One of us, yes, a human being, we think a title of humility like son of God is a title of dignity, but there's more to it than that. Because this exact phrase, one like a son of man, is taken right out of Daniel 7.13. And let me read that for you where John gets it. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. There it is. And he came to the ancient of days. That's God the Father. And he was presented... A dominion, a glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So what John really saw among the candle stands was the Son of Man, that is the one that Daniel said would come to the Ancient of Days, Father, like he did when he rose from the dead, And receive a kingdom, a glory, an authority, and a power. And he would rule with a dominion that could never be destroyed and would never end. And Later on in this text it says, I was dead and I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. You know what that means? It means he went in the prison of death and took the keys off the wall. They're kept on the inside until Jesus came. And when he took the keys off the wall and unlocked the door from the inside and went out and put to naught the one who had the power of death... He controls who gets in and out. Who comes out of that grave? The first fruits of those who belong to Jesus. He has a key. Nobody, not death, Hades, or hell, can keep anybody in when Jesus has the keys in his hands. He saw him standing among the candlesticks and stands as the Lord, the Son of Man. Secondly. Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. Now, what does that mean? The word translated robe to his feet, one Greek word, is not used anywhere else in the New Testament, but it is used a half a dozen times in the Old Testament, always except once, I think, in reference to the long robe of the high priest. And this band, this golden band across his chest, signifies two things, I think. If you're a commoner or you're in a relaxed mode, you bind up your flowing robes in those days around your waist so they don't get too floppy. If you are a person of dignity, you bind them up high across the chest. And if it is gold with which you bind them up, then you are a person of remarkable standing and dignity. So the point here seems to be this son of man, this ruler who has dominion over all the nations and peoples is none other than the climactic high priest who has brought to an end the whole process of sacrifice and whose very presence and being, as the dignified high priest says, it is finished. It is over. Your sins are covered. There will be no more animal sacrifices anymore. I have given a sacrifice in myself. I am both offering and priest on Calvary so that you cannot improve upon the payment I made to remove your condemnation at all. And when we see him walking among the candlesticks, among the stands, what we should see is not only a Lord who rules over death and who rules over the nations, but as a priest, a good priest, a high priest who knows how to empathize with us and sympathize with us in our weaknesses so that as we sit there with our wits on this, this uh, candelabra called Bethlehem, going out, we know that he's there as a sin-bearer, a sin-forgiver this morning. Third, verse 14, his head and his hair were white as white wool, like snow. Now, this is remarkable for several reasons. One is that in that chapter 7 of Daniel, where he takes the phrase, one like a son of man, just four verses earlier, Daniel described God Almighty with words like this. The ancient of days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. In other words, John is taking words from Daniel 7 that were used for the ancient of days, God the Father Almighty, and is applying them to his Son, the Son of Man. And he does that many times throughout the book of Revelation to show us that in the mind and heart of John, the writer here, the apostle, inspired, Jesus has assumed a role and is a being of like standing with God the Father. But there's something even more remarkable or interesting about this white hair. If you read the commentators, different ones say different things. Like they'll say, white is purity. And so he was decked with white hair and his face shone with white, hot luminescence like the sun because he's so pure. Maybe. He was no doubt so pure. But in the Bible, white hair means something different. It means... Age and dignity. In America today, we less and less respect the process of aging. A person is admired if he can keep looking, acting young. And if he can't, it's kind of marginalizing. And keep it front of stage on the TV and in the magazines, the young beautiful. Now, that's not the biblical view of aging. The Bible saw it another way. Listen, Proverbs 1631, a white head is a crown of glory. So much so that in the law, Leviticus 19, God commanded, you will rise up before the white head. And honor the face of an old man, and you will fear the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Listen, young people, it is a mark of arrogance when in our culture we find no ways of showing deference, whether it's a hat off or a bow or a giving of the seat or an opening of the door. It is a mark of arrogance when we can find no cultural ways anymore to bow down before a white head in the face of an old man. Or an old woman. It is no mark of advance on our culture when a child can sue and when a child can ignore the dignity and the glory of age. Now I think what John wants us to see in the son of man who died when he was 33 years old and was recognizable in that 33 year old body yet now having a totally white, snow white head of hair What John wants us to see is here is the oldest human being that will ever exist. Here is the oldest person from everlasting to everlasting. Jesus is old, old, old. He is an old man. He has in him all the age of all the millennia, of all eternity is in Jesus. He is very, very old. And his hair is a crown. Of glory in his age. Bow before him. But Jesus, look at verse 14 again, had eyes that were like a flame of fire. Now, one of the reasons we don't like to get old in this fallen age is that it seems to rob us of the powers that make life worth living. Eyes go, ears go, the mind goes. I got a call from Elsie on Christmas asking me to take her home from the church office. It was so dark. And she wasn't in the church. She was safe in her apartment. We don't want to become like that. That does not belong to aging as aging. That belongs to aging in a sin-sick, cursed world. When the sin-sick, cursed world is redeemed and there's a new heaven and a new earth, aging per-aging is a glorious thing. All the strength of youth is there. All the enthusiasm, all the exhilaration of youth remains added to it all the insight, all the wisdom, all the maturity, all the stability that comes from looking out over expanses of experience and time and seeing what's important and what's not. And when it says his eyes were like a flame of fire, what I think he's trying to say is don't picture this old, old, old Jesus as having lost any of the fire, any of the exhilaration, any of the hope, any of the expectancy, any of the joy, any of the energy and enthusiasm of youth, he's got it all. He's got all the maturity and stability and wisdom and depth of age, and he's got all the fire and zeal and passion and joy and energy of youth. It's all in Jesus. And I'll tell you, when I saw that in preparation, I felt that's what we need so much. Do not come to the end of 1992 saying, Jesus just must be as tired as I am. Jesus must be on the brink of burnout. Jesus must be exhausted. Jesus must be bored. He is not bored with His plans. He is flaming with fire at this year end. We may be tired. He is not tired. He is not weary. We all know eyes that I've seen some of you do this. Eyes that begin to droop because you can't stay awake. We all know the sullen eye of moodiness. And they go half shut. Jesus has no moodiness. Jesus has no weariness. Jesus is never exhausted. Jesus never tires of dreaming up plans for 1993. Your life your family, this church, this country, this world has an agenda that if you could see it through the flaming eyes of Jesus would absolutely blow you away with excitement. Jesus is in charge of this world. He's in charge of Minneapolis. He's in charge of Bethlehem and this candelabra. He's in charge of your life. And whatever has happened in 1992, what he wants you to do is look at him now as a powerful son of man who cannot be defeated, as a priest who forgives all your sins as an old man, rich in years, rich in stability and maturity and depth, and as a man whose eyes are just flaming with energy for your life this year, next year. He wants you to feel that no matter what you feel, he feels excited about your life. He feels excited about the life of this church. He has a future for your family. And for this city, it's like a bridegroom. I picture this because I thought of Psalm 19 because it's got that great picture of the sun rising in full strength. And it says it's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. And so picture the young groom and his eyes are bright and he's full of energy and his whole marriage is before him. And that's Christ. But also, I love to picture the the white hair like Carl Fredericks, maybe. We're going to celebrate a 50th anniversary today. I love to picture people married 50 Some have made it to 60 plus years in this church and say that that is just as valuable, maybe more valuable. What they bring at that point to what's important in life, what really counts having come through decades of hard times and good times and to have a depth and a sense of equilibrium and balance about what really is measured out as valuable. That comes together in Jesus this morning. A bridegroom and a one who's been married for decades, coming together with wisdom and energy and depth and zeal, all into one, offering himself to walk among us now and to trim our wicks and to carve our wax and to blow on our little flame. So let the Lord be your fire this morning. You don't really have to pump it up. You don't have to prove anything to anything. If I look like I've got energy, ha! You do not have to do that. All you have to do is 2 Corinthians 3.18. Look at Jesus. Just keep looking. Just keep looking. Come back Thursday night and let's finish looking at this together. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, I thank You so much that You have infinite resources for Bethlehem. Your eyes blaze with exhilaration about Your plan for 1993. You are ablaze with hope and expectation and zeal for what you mean to accomplish in this city and in this country and among all the peoples of the world in this critical point in history. You will put a stroke on the mosaic of every life that brings it one step closer to the consummation of beauty. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to look to you. Don't let us take our eyes off of you. May we be in the Spirit on this Lord's day. In his name I pray, amen.